get any loot NFT? Did you get more loot? I, I got loot and I got also more loot. <laughs> oh, hold up, hold up. Really, yeah. you got loot? Yeah, I got loot, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. okay, so th that's why you're pushing back hard on me on my pessimistic <laughs> side. Okay, like, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm not a impartial moderator here. I, I completely yeah, you, you, all, all I think you have to table. say that up front, right? I invest I in loot. Yes. Welcome to the 14th roundtable of the Metacast, the show which is brought to you by Navic, in which we explore the business of video games. I'm your host, Nico, and today I'm joined by Janie Perasini, David Amor, and Chong An. I am extremely excited about this episode because we have a full crypto squad on the Metacast today, and this will allow us to go a bit deeper than usual into blockchain and games. Of course, we will do our best to keep things understandable for the layman, and we hope you will come out of this podcast as excited as we are for the future of games. Today's topics will be, first, the loot phenomenon, second, if and how blockchain games can scale, and then finally, some best practices around using blockchain in games. And as today's bonus segments, we are doing another round of bold predictions. But before we start, I'd like to introduce a brand new member to the Metacast. With us today is Chong An. Chong is a veteran with two decades of experience in the games industry, holding positions at companies like Ubisoft, Square Enix, Scopely, Take-Two, NCSoft, and EA. And a few years ago, he became fascinated with what blockchain can bring to games, and that's why he is currently the VP of product at Mythical Games. Next to being incredibly knowledgeable and well-spoken, I can also confirm that Chong is a really nice guy. Chong, welcome to the Metacast. Uh, thank you, Nico. I appreciate the intro. That was really <laughs> nice of you. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit more about uh, Mythical Games? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Mythical Games uh, is first and foremost a platform technology company, uh, obviously focused in the blockchain gaming space. Um, our kind of vision, if you will, is to facilitate new game economies driven by player ownership, because uh, we we believe that that's like the next wave of how mm -hmm. you know players, developers, and publishers are really going to interact. Uh, we're a big believers of true ownership of digital assets, verifiable scarcity, and you know integrated secondary markets, um, and we're really bullish on that front. And that's essentially the the mission, the vision of what Mythical is trying to accomplish not only with our own games that we've developed internally, like Blanco's Block Party, uh, but with other projects that we have inbound, uh, which we think will help, you know, prove and validate, um, you know, our thesis going into the space. That's awesome. Very exciting. And so, Chung, what game are you currently playing? Uh, the one that actually has taken up uh, a bit of my time lately. It might be a little bit old, but uh, I've been playing a lot of Escape from Tarkov. Uh, I'm really fascinated by that particular genre of game because um, I've, I've been working on shooters for a bit. I'm really, I'm, I'm a big fan. But in parallel to Escape from Tarkov, I've been playing a bit more of Deep Rock Galactic, uh, which if you guys don't know that product, um, you know, take a look at it. It's on Steam. It's a co-op shooter. And uh, as you can see from those two products, you can see where my head's going. Mm. Uh, but it's just really fascinating when you kind of juxtapose to those two products and see what the interplay might be. Uh, Interesting. I'm, uh, I'm excited to have some shooters because I'm also a big shooter fan myself. So I'm excited oh, cool. to have some shooters and, uh, and blockchain uh, combined. Yeah, yeah. David, it hey. has been a while since we heard your fantastic podcasting voice. 
How are things on your side? Perfect. I've been working on my tan mostly. Nice. It's really been the focus of my energy since we last spoke. And <laughs> uh, now I did actually get away. You know, I wasn't sure if this was a year where we could go somewhere hot, but that's what happened. And so, yeah, I've had a good summer in that respect. Uh, nice to be back, though. Things to get done. Here I am. Cool. And Janie, what's new with you? Oh, you know, three kigs. Uh, about to start a new gig, so I'm excited about that. Smoking a lot of cigars. Eating a lot of steak. Eating a lot of steak. A lot of steak. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Exactly. Trying to get gout as quickly as possible in my room. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cool. Let's let's start. Topic one, the loot phenomenon. So if you haven't heard about loot yet, you better strap in for a wild ride. And as you'll probably notice, I'm absolutely fascinated by this and I'm, uh, I'm kind of still struggling to wrap my head around it. It feels like this could be a potential uh, major paradigm shift in games. Um, and yeah, I'm just very excited to see what comes out of this and also to have your opinions. So what happens? As a backstory, um, this is all about NFTs. So loots are NFTs. Um, and yeah, the NFT market has been going quite ballistic over the past month. But maybe before we continue, let's maybe touch upon what an NFT is. David, could, could you give us like a, a, sh- a short explanation of that? You know, I can try. I would say <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a digital asset that's a unique digital asset that's provably owned by somebody in a distributed way. Okay. So um, it's something that you own usually of some scarcity, usually of some value. But the important thing is that you can prove that it's yours. It's a digital item. All right. So it's like a picture, for example, that could be an NFT and you can prove that you have it. And I cannot prove that I have it if I don't have the keys to that wallet that owns that NFT. Correct. Perfect. All right. Cool. So with that out of the way, we know NFTs. On Friday, August 27th, Dom Hoffman, one of the creators of the Vine app, don't know if you remember that one, the one with uh, like a few seconds long videos, posted the following tweet. Loot. Randomized adventurer gear. No images or stats. Intentionally omitted for others to interpret. No fee, just gas. 8,000 bags total. Mint at your own risk. And underneath that tweet was a picture of a list of equipment, including a weapon, armor, belt, ring, gloves, etc. And so because NFTs are so hot right now, all the 8,000 loot bags were minted in minutes. And so minting means that you claim the NFT for yourself, right? So so you have a smart contract and you claim one of the bags for yourself if if you mint them. However, what happened in the next days is where things got really interesting. So those 8,000 loot bags, which could be gotten for free, were resold for a total of $240 million. And now the cheapest bag would cost you around 30K. And afterwards, some people started getting really creative with these NFTs. So some people started drawing pictures of loot bags, some by hand, others with AI-generated pixel art. Other community members created guilds based on the items found in the bags. So for example, owners of Divine Robes, of which are only 400, set up their own community along with a Discord and a storefront. And then a new derivative Mloot NFT project was created. So this is another NFT. Um, and so of these Mloots, there's four more than 8,000, giving more people the opportunity to own a bag of equipment. Also, a loot currency was launched called Adventure Gold and distributed to owners of the loot bags. Next, games were created on top of the loot bags. So, for example, you have loot wars where you can pick a side um, and the side with most power, meaning the side that has the best items, wins the battle. 
And then there were DAOs, so distributed anonymous autonomous organizations were set up to vote on the future of loot uh, with one vote per bag of loot. And all of these things have been done by community members. So Dom Hoffman, who launched the initial tweets, is not spearheading this. He's just part of the community now. So basically what started as a smart contract with, with 8,000 lists of gear now has a Discord with tens of thousands of members and dozens of people building different experience on top of these NFTs. So guys, what were your thoughts when you learned about this? Janie, <laughs> share. Okay, so I am the, the contrarian, I guess, uh, for, for this episode. I, I kind of think it's a little bit of BS and here's why. Here are my points. Number one. It's a text file. So like everyone's mm -hmm. getting real excited about that. Number two, the floor price of loot has gone down by 50% yesterday and another 20% today. Number mm -hmm. three, a lot of gaming projects already are baking into the fact that it's interoperability. And number four or five or even six or seven, it's ERC-20, which it should be ERC-721 or ERC-1155. So the fact that it's actually, it's, a, it's, it's not an NFT actually, it's fungible as an ERC-20. So um, I just find it really odd because if it were an ERC-1155, let's Chong and I, you know, went, uh, came from EA, let's say like I got something in Bejeweled, I could actually exchange that for a gun in Battlefield or something like that pretty easily with that kind of, you know, uh, uh, token or whatever. But I just find that like a lot of people that are owning it too, don't understand that, like th that the this promise already exists. So... I don't, you know, that's me just being the skeptic. All right. Very skeptical. John, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I think, I think personally, I, I think it's a very interesting experiment uh, that I think Dom put out there. Uh, I think it actually sparks a lot of creativity based on how minimal he released this thing, right? So I'm, I'm kind of bullish in the sense of, you know, he put together this, this really interesting project and it was to see like how much creative energy and community formation he could get in a pretty short amount of time. So I, to me, like, I think that's really the value. Um, the fact that, you know, there's all these different uh, community groups that got together to kind of develop, okay, what's the rarity system behind this thing? Because he didn't provide that, he being dumb. Um, you know, they started like, to your point, they started creating art projects and guilds and so on and so forth. There's a lot that happened in a short amount of time that I think is really valuable as a lesson in almost like crowdsourcing and IP uh, dissemination. Because now you have the original loot project and you have all these derivative projects that may or may not connect at one point. But I think the, the, the outcome he was looking for is how much can people take a thing and you know build on top of it to create a larger ecosystem that might at some point have interoperability. But where I think Janie brings up a lot of good points is that there is a lot of gaps and holes related to the product. There's a lot to be desired. So once you kind of move past the initial novelty of the project and what it might actually be, um, I think that's where you can poke a lot of holes at it. But who knows? It's I think it's still early on. Uh, we'll see where it goes. But regardless of, I guess, your view on that stance of it, um, I mean, they hit a pretty large market capitalization. You know, like even I think when I checked it like last week, I mean, they did over 180 million, you know, in terms of like market capitalization. So for, you know, to Jamie's point, for a text file to do something <laughs> to that level, like it's incredible, right? So there's a lot of pros and cons. 
And, so. and to charge you, I mean, you bring up some good points too. And I also agree though that like the there's there's a lot of lore. I mean, but lore channels in general on Discord are like one of the biggest and most active. Like if you're in any project, lore channels like are usually the ones that like go nuts all the time. Um, and there's like cottage industries coming out of this project now too, like designers and and folks that are like, hey, you know, if you own one of these things, I'll like build, you know, I'll like create, you know, what the art or I'll create this asset for you basically. Mm-hmm. So I see the goodness in that. I just, again, I think it's a lot of hype. Mm-hmm. David. Well, I started when I first heard about it, which is only a week, week or two ago. It doesn't uh, exist for two weeks. So it's going to be less than that. Wow. It was in his mind before that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I started where any rational person would start, which is, this is absolute nonsense. Why on earth would a set of 8,000 uh, pictures with white text on black be worth this, be this interesting and be worth this much money? Now, a week later, I think it's the most interesting thing that's happening in games in, in five years. It's amazing. And yeah, you know, Jenny, you might be right that there's some holes in the implementation, but it's the idea of what it is. It's a completely different way of going about building interactive content. It's saying here is a base element for you to, that, that now is owned by 8,000 people, however many people it's owned by. Now you can use that in any way that you can think of. Go ahead and build anything you want. I'm not going to say too much about what it's supposed to be for, or what you should do with it, what you shouldn't do with it, but uh, go forth and do fun things with it. And that's exactly what's happening. To What's interesting is that it's a completely different way of building interactive content, building games. It's starting with nothing and then letting other people build up. And I've, that's never happened before in video games. So that's... Uh, it might not be the perfect implementation. It's just, to me, it's, uh, it's what happens from here that makes it so interesting. And I love, why I love the games industry is that every so often something comes along that makes you stop in your tracks and go, well, how's, how's that work? And it was one of those. And to me, they only come around like every five years, which is amazing. I just love the fact that that's what happened to me last week. But like, what's the difference between... Uh, build like in Rec Room or some of these other metaverses where you can like basically build a game versus laziness of just saying I put a list together and now you guys do all the hard work about building a game. Well, because <laughs> I think that some audiences and I don't know how wide it is don't want to be told what the game is. They want to decide what the game is between them and really just start with the most simple game element rather than any kind of you know if you're building minecraft's world it's very very versatile but you're still within the constraints of what it is somehow but here you're just saying build whatever code you want on top of this and i think that chimes with an audience that that in a way that we hadn't seen before i don't know why this one really caught the imagination over another i I take your point that it could have been something else but there's something about this that uh that really resonated with people. So kudos for that. I, I think, yeah, it's a, I, I agree with a lot of the comments that are being made. Um, to the, one, one extra point that I want to bring up, you know, from the base level that they started at, which is relatively simplistic, right? It's just a list of gear that you essentially have. But on the flip side of that, because it's so low effort in the sense of like what you've been able to come up with, you're starting to see uh, you know, low effort copycats, right? That's already spawned, you know, s- of, since a week since this got created, 
which I think to some degree kind of points to what Janie's talking about. But I'm also interested in the low level low effort copycats because they're also doing something really interesting which goes back to community formation so if you guys take a look at bloot which is b loot right i don't know if you guys have seen this yeah it's just ridiculous right it, it, it's basically an x-rated x-rated version of loot with like ridiculous things on their list of you know items that they have right like pumped up kicks and what is this like like eight fur ring of rage and things that i don't want to mention on this podcast <laughs> But the fact that they were able to do that, I think, is really interesting in and of itself because now you're spinning off of someone else's creativity to build something new, which I think speaks to David's point because like, it really allows like creativity to thrive. But the part that I felt was almost opportunistic, and this is where maybe like the troll factor comes in, is the fact that the key members of the Blute project was on places like Twitter bragging about the fact that hey, you know, we created a token too. Yeah, I think they call it, I think Loot was like A-G-L-D. Like yeah. Blue created one called B-G-L-D. Mm-hmm. And they hit something like $40 million in volume in like Sushi Swap. And he straight up called out the fact that, oh, by the way, we have no incentives for trading, for liquidity. It's probably mm-hmm. nothing, but we did all of this, which I think is also really interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because they been able to build a pretty large community relatively quickly based off of that and now there's derivative projects that are also spinning up so i I see a lot of pros and cons on both sides on why these things are kind of interesting i think ultimately it just comes down to execution what do you do with it now right like what do you do with all these derivative projects and how do you actually make a thing versus like being a flash in the pan Mm -hmm. well that's my hope too is i hope that the people that own these these uh items either are interested in gaming, which, you know, historically I've seen that most people early in gaming projects aren't gamers. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in myth- what Mythical's data shows, but like most, what I've seen is like, they they get some NFTs, they maybe play, they enter the game once, but then that's it. And they just hold on to whatever they have. And then they might come in 90 days later, which is pretty normal for a blockchain game. But like for traditional games, that's like unheard of to just see like, hot really high d90 but then like really low like d2 you know it's like this weird this weird uh curve that we just don't see in typical gaming so let's assume that the majority of owners of loot aren't gamers then either this thing dies because no one develops on it or you're gonna have like a a utility war where it's like people are gonna be constantly like trying to outdo each other with how they're developing this and so um yeah, I don't know like how I don't know how it's gonna play out, but like that's those are my those are like that's where my head's at too, outside of being mm. obviously the pessimist of this group. There's there's another aspect that I like about it, which is that um, for a while we talked about this idea of being able to take some, uh, a weapon that you might have in Minecraft and take it over to Fortnite, and technically, of course, that's possible. You you own that NFT, so and each game could verify that you own it and show it and display it in the game. Then then we all agree. Yeah, but Microsoft and Epic would never let that happen. Now, but if you have a different starting point, which is what's just happened here, then in a month's time, there's going to be 10 different games all using this one NFT because it has a different start position. So I'm quite sure that, you know, you're seeing some really simple games that happen after one, you know, been built after one week. Mm-hmm. But now... But as I say, in a month's time, 10 games, more polished or, you know, more engaging, something about them. 
but they all share these same NFTs. So I'm wondering whether or not this idea of sharing NFTs across games doesn't happen with established games, but happens in a way that we've just seen, where you start with the base NFT and then allow people to build from it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, I think to the point earlier, creating the coherent ecosystem, I think that's the fun and the ability to engage. Uh, I think it does open up the funnel quite a bit. Uh, I think it makes it really interesting. And because you're not starting off with like super high fidelity or a certain level of technical um, complexity, it actually attracted a lot of people to try it out, right? Because I think um, there's a thing that he also created called like synthetic loop where he's opened up, you know, the contract, say, hey, go check this out. It's not an NFT, but you guys can play around with it, you know, gave instructions on how to do it. And so there's a lot of really interesting uh, creative formation that's happening, which I think mm-hmm. is really positive for the industry. But yeah, I, I, I think the challenge that they're going to end up facing is as, as time goes on and, you know, certain expectations are being, you know, set, whether they want it or not, um, are they going to be able to deliver against that front? I think that's really where it's going to get challenging. But the other side of it too is I could see a scenario where they're taking this level of NFT the way that it's set up right now. And because let's say you bought one of the bags, it's now yours. You can create your own world and, you know, uh, you know, metaverse, if you will, from that, create your own novelty, create your own narrative. And now you've like taken that derivative and made it your completely your own thing similar to some other projects that you see in the marketplace today, right? Like Punk's Comics being, I think, the most mm-hmm. uh, prevalent one where they took, they bought essentially 16 of the crypto punks, And by purchasing them, now that it's theirs, they've created their own entire universe completely separate from CryptoPunks. But there's a connection there because of the origination point. But now they've created their own universe, their own brand, their own IP, which I think really helps to change the way we think about, you know, development in general, particularly for games. I think that's mm-hmm. really where the spark is. One of the results of a project like this seeing so much revenue is there's going to be, this won't be the last, will it? So this is the first, and as you say, there's uh, various projects on the way. Something that generates this much revenue is going to get a lot of interest from all sorts of people. So I'm also interested in it just because it feels like the first of a new thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I saw tweets saying that as you had with Bitcoin, there's before Bitcoin, after Bitcoin. As you had with punks, there's before punks, after punks, and now there's going to be there's before loot and after loot. Yeah. Um, I, I, have to, I have two comments to to what you guys were, were talking about. So first, Janie, you were talking about you know what if you know let's say that almost everyone that bought a loot or owns a loot bag is actually not a gamer and is an investor. Um, which could very well be the case as, I mean, loot bags are worth a lot of money, 30K. Um, not every, like not a lot of gamers have that kind of money to, to spend or invest. Um, one of the cool things you get with NFTs and, and smart contracts is that, um, and, you, and you see this with other NFTs right now, is that you can like find a way to rent them out. So let's say that you have a game, which is really fun, which, and you need a loot bag to play. Um, there is a world where you can, as a loot holder, bag owner, you can rent out your loot bag for a tiny amount of money. So that way you'd still own it. Um, and someone who is a gamer who is willing to pay to play um, can then use it, let, use your loot bag to, to play the game. So that would be one solution to w- what you were saying. Which is, I guess, like Axie. Um, have the scholarships. Yeah. Yeah, scholarships. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, 
Nico, did you did you get did you get loot? Did you get any loot NFT? Did you get more loot? I get I I got loot and I got also more loot. <laughs> oh, hold up, hold up. Really, yeah. you got loot? Yeah, I got loot. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay so that, that's why you're pushing back hard on me on my pessimistic side. I okay, I'm gonna be honest. I'm, I'm I'm not a impartial moderator here. I, I completely yeah, you. you I think you have to table. say that up front, right? I invest I in loot. I should, yes, because I, I was like, why the hell are we talking about loot? There's other projects too. Now it makes sure. sense. Uh, nice. No, I mean, like to everyone's point. Yes, I agree that loot could be cool, but. This isn't new. Like if you're deep into, you know, blockchain gaming, like I've seen other things like this. It just hasn't gotten the uh, virality or the hype that loot has. Um, and my big concern is that loot could die without without others agreeing that like, oh, yeah, like like the developers, like what's to say that EA or Activision or Mythical aren't going to like partner up and just say, we're going to have our own ecosystem of interchangeable, you know, NFTs. And then loot dies because it's, it, you, even though it says you can, like they don't accept loot's NFTs. They don't accept mm -hmm. some aspect of it. So like, that's my, my big thing too, is like, I just, there's nothing to keep it competitive. Like this is not, this is not something that is unique. Can I give give an answer to that? Sure. So, and actually, I just made this realization while Chong was talking. Sorry, I'm very biased again, but I, I mean, this thing yeah, absolutely fascinates me. So um, I, I've talked about this adventure gold, right? This token that was given mm -hmm. to all of the loot holders. So that stuff has value now. So they dropped 10,000 tokens to every um, loot bag holder. And that is currently worth, that 10,000 is currently worth, I think about 40K or something. Um, and so the loot holders can actually as a DAO, together decide on dropping more of this token, this adventure gold, which has value that they can sell, right? Um, which could actually mean that as loot, as the bag holders, you can actually literally pay a company to build a game on top of loot and just pay them with new adventure gold. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like even at Gala Games, like the node owners voted on which games got built and which didn't. Uh -huh. You know, like the like uh, again, like the, if you're a node, like you get the same voting rights too if you if you're participating in some of these projects too. So I guess I'm not. I'm just a pessimist. Like, again, I'm a pessimist because yeah, I don't game. see the uniqueness of any of this. I'm actually really glad you are because otherwise this would be a boring conversation, you know? <laughs> just all agreeing. Well, in yeah, circle. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sponsored by loot. Is, you know, the break's <laughs> going to like have that yeah, organ music and then it's going to be like, if you like this podcast, please buy loot. And then, buy loot, yeah. yeah. With yeah, the referral right. code, Nico. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm very sorry for my biasness. I should probably have started no, with that. Maybe I'll edit this it. This is why it's interesting, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess, the, you know, maybe that's too, is like the whole loaning and renting, and maybe this is where I need to do more education is, is ERC-20 the best for renting and loaning on NFTs? Is ERC-721 better? It, you know, I think this is where it comes comes into play too around mm -hmm. the technology, which I think we get into in topic two. I'm not taking over your job, Nico. But Right. Like the that's my thing, too, is like uh, there's limitations to ERC-20 and there's a lot of people that don't use it anymore for various reasons. It's like my other concern, too, is that it's, and this is where opinions matter. Like, I don't think that's the best one to be to be using for something like this. So and, yeah. and Janie, can you explain uh, what the difference is between one and the, or the other? Or what are you even talking about? Let's start there. <laughs> okay, sure. So, <laughs> all right. So ERC-20, uh, let me let me try to explain here. Okay, so 
Uh, ERC-20, I think, came before ERC-721. ERC-20 is a fungible ass. It's not, it's not non, non-fungible. So it's fungible. And ERC-721 is an asset class, whereas ERC-20 is a single asset. And that's, my, I guess, my first understanding. Then there's ERC, uh, what, 11, 11.55, I want to say, which is the whole idea concept of being able to, if you get like an in-game item or gems or something like that, you're able to, you know, swap it out or like basically take, you know, get a sword uh, instead or something like that. So, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm not is a technical it a, person here. Is but it um, just a different way of recording these digital items? Well, ERC-721 came out of the limitations of ERC-20. Mm-hmm. So, or ERC-720, I want to say. But so ERC-721 is kind of considered like, I would say like the, the crypto enthusiasts tend to like it more. Like they're like, oh yeah, it's ERC-721. Because it's also, you can give that item full custodial uh, ownership. Whereas ERC twenty isn't, so again, this goes back to like there's all these nuances of of the the on the technical side. So if it were ERC seven twenty one, I would actually be more interested in it. But because it's ERC twenty, I'm not. And don't you think there was a like a design decision? Because it feels well, like this the gets guy... into this gets into I guess the second thing is like there's always trade offs. There's you know, uh, there's de- the decentralized nature of these things. There's mm-hmm. the scalability. There's the interoperability, or even just the management of it, of like being able to swap things and or move things from one chain to another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know why it's ERC twenty. I mean, maybe okay. David, you do. I do. But... All right. Maybe uh, let's continue to our next question. Can then we can start discussing that. Um, and so our, our next topic that we're discussing is blockchain games at scale. Um, and this question actually comes from our Discord. Um, so some of you may know that Navic has a Discord server where we discuss the business of games and everything around it. Um, and we will be opening our Discord soon for our listeners. So if you're interested in joining it, um, you can subscribe to our newsletter at navic.co. And so this question comes from Juni Dijkstra, um, and I'll uh, read it now. While I'm still trying to wrap my head around the blockchain in its entirety, I keep finding myself returning to the same question, which admittedly is more general with an Im- indirect impact on games. How is data retrieved from the chain of transactions slash contracts to validate, to interact with, etc.? Under my naive assumption, the amount of transactions is going to explode exponentially, leading to a gargantuan chain. In any other type of storage, search queries would have to be optimized heavily to be able to deal with the vast quantities of data. How does this work for the blockchain? How will it scale? And how does that influence development and player experience? So maybe let's immediately talk about some limitations that we've seen in, in, the, in the blockchain and game space when it uh, comes to scalability. Um, Chong, you want to kick this off? Yeah, so, I mean, I think for a lot of the products that have come out early on that gained a lot of traction that was on, you know, what we call like layer one tech, layer one tech being, you know, the, the main line, uh, you know, crypto, crypto lines like Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, you know, these, the main net or layer one wasn't really meant for the type of like transactional volume, the type of, you know, interactions uh, that we see with, you know, gaming like products. So, you know, oftentimes early on, what you ended up seeing because of the nature of the way that NFTs, their drops, um, the way that they, you know, gather users into a particular, uh, you know, merchandising sequence, 
and you're like spiking, uh, you know, a certain amount of concurrent users, uh, it really will bring those types of, you know, platforms uh, to a halt because of the sheer volume of traffic and, uh, you know, compute that's required in order for it to work. And so, like, I think that's some of the challenges that were faced early on. But now what you're seeing is new technologies, like what we call like layer two technologies, you know, side chains, things that will essentially handle that traffic, that compute off the mainnet uh, so that you allow for that level of flexibility and velocity that, you know, users are accustomed to in today's digital age. So mm. that's, yeah. Right. So when you talk about, you know, NFT drops, uh, so an example would be, I guess, then the loot drop that we just discussed as an easy example where the 8000 bags were able to mint and everyone did it at the same time. And because of that, the network got congested and that means that gas fees. So the money that you have to put in every transaction for it to go through or get recorded on the blockchain can spike up. Um, I mean, I've been doing some stuff with smart contracts and I've been paying uh, easily hundreds uh, or hundred dollars per transaction. And you're not um, guaranteed so, that item. You could be paying all that gas fee and still not yeah, get it. Exactly. So um, yeah, there's some clear limitations and issues there. So um, let's um, let's talk maybe next about some like solution and go a bit more in depth on on um, on the difference between them. Um, so Chong, you talked about layer two. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So you know, if you take a look at like layer two technologies, um, or actually even going back to like layer one. Um, layer one typically, and please guys correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, my understanding is that it's usually, you know, working off of a proof of work model. Mm -hmm. Um, so that takes a lot more, you know, work, uh, and energy, uh, if you will, in order to validate some of these transactions that are occurring, which is where a lot of the slowdown, the congestion that you mentioned really comes into play. And so when you take a look at things like layer two technologies, which a lot of them are moving to other forms of validation, uh, typically like, you know, POS or proof of stake. Uh, now you're, you know, creating a scenario where um, it allows for that level of velocity and transactional volume that, you know, products that, that we're in the space of, um, you know, uh, is able to operate a little bit better in. So at a very high level, that's that's the way that I that I see it. And there's a lot more technical details in that. But uh, I've, I've got an analogy that, uh, that works for me that I, I heard on the internet, which is that, uh, you know, Bitcoin, which is the biggest currently, the biggest blockchain, um, has an issue, wasn't really designed for tons and tons of transactions. And uh, a layer two, the analogy that I, I like is that if you imagine a shopkeeper that is running a, a, their store, people are coming and going, buying things, getting changed, money goes in and out the till. Now, at the end of the week, the shopkeeper goes to the bank, puts the money in the bank, uh, and then maybe get some more coins to use in the till the next day. That happens once a week, uh, but the sort of the shopkeeper doesn't need to go to the bank every week. Uh, sorry, every day, every transaction. That's not necessary. Uh, it, it's much more sensible to bunch everything up and then do it once a week, and that's fine. The, the banks are much happier that this guy isn't coming in and out all the time, and it's just much more efficient. And I think that's what you're seeing with layer twos. It's just a more you don't need to. Uh, write everything immediately to uh, the Ethereum chain or the Bitcoin, uh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, Bitcoin chain. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think there's just some strategies as to, well, and in fact, a little bit like API calls. You don't, if you're making a mobile free-to-play game, you don't really want every API call, every time a player does something to phone home, you're better off bunching those things up. It's much more efficient. So I think um, it's 
it's not necessary to record everything all the time on a main chain. So that's what layer twos provide. And actually, moreover, uh, there's this idea of on-chain and off-chain. You can, of course, all games to date, um, regular games have been built off-chain. Uh, and of course, they work. Now, when you come to make a blockchain game, you have a decision to make, which is what components of our games are going to be on-chain, mm-hmm. running on the blockchain. And and for a lot of games, that's probably 5% of network traffic. You're just trying to figure out uh, who owns what, mm-hmm. who's traded what. So you can make some production decisions as to exactly how much do we need to actually lean on the blockchain. And trying to do everything on a mainnet chain is inadvisable because it's slow, it's expensive, and and ultimately not necessary. So uh, there's some, as I say, I think there's a number of layer two or side chains, which is a different approach uh, to to make uh, blockchain availability still there, but more suitable for the kind of things that game makers require. Yeah, I think David hit the nail on the head, right? Like uh, the type of applications that, you know, we're looking to do, uh, at least the ones that are in the gaming space, uh, whether it's DAO voting or it's, you know, small cash transfers, NFTs, uh, these are the type of things that, you know, you need to be able to process at, I think, the velocity that's expected from the user base. And so if you're optimizing for, or your outcome is to optimize for speed and cost, I think side chains are a really good solution to that. And there's a lot of different ways that you can validate against that. And it gives you a certain amount of interoperability as well, you know, moving from, you know, one chain to another to another, which I think is where the versatility comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also who you appeal to. So, you know, if you're appealing to like hardcore crypto, you know, first type of people, they might be more interested in, you know, what your game's powered on from a security perspective and decentralization perspective and might be okay with the lack of speed or the clunkiness of, you know, creating a wallet and onboarding. Whereas, like, say that you're, you know, you you have a, a you know, a, a project that's more sports or real-time based. And so speed's going to be more of an, a factor in an issue. Uh, maybe you can, you can offset some of that decentralization and, you know, still keep some of the security. And then sidechain, sidechains, yeah, is a is a um, something is a strategy, but it also means that you're you still at some point have to like assign validators. So you're actually losing some of that decentralization aspect of you know kind of the the tenets of blockchain in terms of like those blockchain projects. Mm-hmm. So you just can't have all three. You can't have there. You know, I will use my. Th- there is no chain to rule them all. There's no chain that's the fastest, that's the most secure, and that's the most decentralized that everyone should be building on. Exactly. I do. There's a lot of discussion in blockchain games world at the moment, talking about which chains are most suitable, best to use. Uh, Some of it is sort of quasi-religious, which is, do you believe that the blockchain should be a public blockchain or should it be a, is it okay if it's a private centralized chain? Functionally, it's similar. But how much do you care? How much does the player care? And uh, in a way, I see this a little bit like, I, I might have my history wrong, but my recollection is when the internet was just being formed, then Microsoft looked at it and said, we should make our own internet, encourage everybody to come over to the Microsoft internet, which I could believe in a power universe might have happened. I'm glad, here we are in 2021, I'm mm-hmm. glad the internet is basically public. So there's uh, some not only decisions about technical decisions, functionality decisions, but also what do you want from a chain? What's important to, uh, you know, what do we feel is an important way of doing this for the future? 
Yeah, I fully agree. David, like when you hear about, uh, you know, in the blockchain and, and gaming uh, conversation, what are sort of the names that keep coming up just to give uh, our audience an idea of where to start looking when they're interested in, in perhaps implementing blockchain in their games? Uh, you mean the sort of technology that underpins it? Exactly. Well, I think that the NFT world at the moment, if, if that's what your game's about, is really uh, centered on Ethereum, not on Bitcoin, which mm -hmm. is really about payments. Ethereum is where NFTs live, I think, natively, maybe BitSolano. And then you can sort of degrees of separation from Ethereum. Um, you know, Mutable X is a, a, a layer two chain that, that w works well with Ethereum. Um, I'm not the best person to want those, answer those technical questions, truthfully. And, and, and also, the, uh, it, that ecosystem is it's so early that I don't think it's become clear yet exactly uh -huh. how this is going to pan out. I mean, in early 3D games, it felt like there was like 20 publicly available 3D engines, and then a lot of studios were building their own. That's how it feels right now. And uh, I don't know what the right solution is yet. So yeah. I think we're finding out. Uh, uh -huh. Chong, anything to add? No, I, I think, you know, it's well covered. Um, I think David's right. I think Jenny makes a lot of good points. Um, I mean, we, this is super early, I think, you know, in, in the current development phase. It gives like, because there's a lot of parallels, I think, what happened in former, you know, platform shifts that have occurred. And so I think there'll be, you know, better technologies, you know, better ideas that surface. Um, I mean, even with like Ethereum, right, as this is a good example, you know, everyone's kind of waiting for what's their next one called Serenity or E2. You know, what, mm -hmm. what is that going to do? How is that going to change the landscape? And, you know, that's just like the main players, right? How many other studios are trying to solve for this exact same problem? And so I think a lot of really creative stuff will happen. Um, mm -hmm. Just getting started. And I suppose it's interesting to me looking at Top Shot, it's a, which is on a, uh, I, I understand it, a decentralized, it's not a, cent, a centralized chain, I should say. And evidently the players don't really care. I don't think you can take Top Shot uh, cards out to OpenSea or some other Ethereum place that you can trade them. Uh, but the players don't care. And then the question, much in the same way as they didn't care what 3, 3D engine was being used, perhaps. Um, and so you've got to make a decision both in terms of what you want to do in game production, but also in terms of what, what's right for the consumer or do they care. So there's, there's quite a lot to take, uh, take in when making that decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And before we move on to the next um, topic, just one more honorable mention. So um, the company Zebedee, or ZBD, I don't know how to pronounce it, recently raised 11.5 million um, to continue their development on a Bitcoin-based pay payment system. And if you're, if you know the space, you'll think Bitcoin-based payments. How can that be? Um, but they're actually using the Lightning Network, which is Bitcoin's layer two solution. Um, I've used it. I've got a Lightning wallet, and I've. Are received... you an investor? I'm not an investor. <laughs> <laughs> this is next. Time. Okay, every time I invest in something Good from now question, on, I'm gonna Jamie. I'm gonna say it beforehand before <laughs> my bias giving, will I'm prove. Just give me shit now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, no, Zebedee, um, a very interesting project. And so what they do is they use the Lightning Network to do like some kind of like micro pay payments, where you can you know pay pay fraction of a cent or put fractions of a cent inside a pot, play a match, and then the winner receives the pot, stuff stuff like that. Um, really interesting. Um, I'm a user of the, bit, the the Lightning Network, and it's crazy. Like I've sent like one Satoshi for the price of one Satoshi, um, and it's really fast and it's very promising. So yeah, um, I guess so. Uh, is that is that on uh, a mobile or is that 
PC or a browser. I, I'm interested in knowing how that kind of payment system can exist on uh, iOS and Android. Mm -hmm. And that's I know a that's question, a bit actually. of a moving target today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't but, know about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> I think they have had some success on mobile platforms, so it would be great to see them fully break, uh, break through and introduce a new payment system within uh, games on mobile. Absolutely. I think this is one other, you know, potential use case for, for blockchain and just, you know, uh, exchanging value like around Apple, you know, around their walls um, if, they, if they'll allow it. So that's, I guess, in a discussion for another time. Um, and then finally, we have our third topic of today. Um, let's talk about some best practices about around blockchain and games. So all three of our panelists have been active in this space for some time, and I've noticed quite some interest from the games industry around the potential of blockchain. So um, yeah, let's share some of your best practices that you've discovered with your experience. Um, perhaps a good question to start with, because I've noticed there's some confusion around this. What are some ways that blockchain games can make money? Janie, you want, you want to kick this off? <laughs> We'll just start listing. We'll do round robin. Um, they can make money by selling in-game items mm -hmm. uh, and making a, a, a fee or a transaction on that. I, I would say I caveat because, well, I guess we're going to go into the treasury later. So they can make money by by selling in-game items. I'll start do you there. Mean, and then you mean consumables? Is that what you mean by that? Consumables. Right. I okay. mean, some people like to say in-game items because it gets away from some of the legal um, oh. stuff. So I see. I see you've worked at EA before. Yeah, in-game <laughs> items. It's in-game items. They're not okay. assets. Okay, okay. Uh, yes. Surprise boxes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, there's one. That's one. Well, I think uh, the, you know, Axie has shown that people are willing to pay money to start playing a game. Yeah, that's you know, we're good, so yeah. used to free, We're so used to free-to-play on mobile yeah. that uh, the idea of doing anything different seems, seems odd, and yet... So if you want to start playing Axie today on mobile, then that's probably $1,000 to start playing. Is that mm -hmm. what it is? Something like that. So, you know, the idea of having to buy NFTs before you start playing the game is, well, that's enormous for Axie if, you, mm -hmm. if every player is having to spend $1,000 before they start playing. So that would be my, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I think it really comes down to, yeah, the type of game, but kind of like leaning into what Janie was saying. Uh, depending on what type of game you're building, there's a certain level of, I think, dependencies that you can create with NFTs so that it powers your in-game action and economy. So like I'll use Axie as an example. You know, they have specific game modes that you go into to farm very specific NFTs or tokens rather that you need to be able to leverage to do other activities that lead to potential financial outcomes, right? So in mm -hmm. order to breed you know, you need both SLP, uh, which is, you know, one of their tokens. Uh, I think it's called like standard love potion, as well as, you know, their, you know, other, I think, you know, token, which is AXS, which can only earn through in-game activity. And you need both of those things in order to breed your Axie monsters, which then you can flip on the marketplace or, you know, you leverage for yourself, right? So like that interdependency between, you know, if you're coming from a free-to-play background, various currencies or crafting items is another way that, you know, these products can, you know, generate revenue. I, I guess the other one is uh, secondary sales. Yeah. So that's a, 
I, is there any kind of standard about what sort of percentage that is? But certainly the idea that when a player sells something to someone else, then there's a smart contract that means the original creator, the game maker, sees a cut of that, which I think, oh, I don't know, 10% or something like that. Where, where are we ending up? Is that standard? I wish Sung was on the, on the podcast that had a marketplace. <coughs> Chong. Uh, I've actually, <laughs> I bought... Uh, I bought the Burberry arm cuffs or whatever uh, for my, my little guy did. Yeah, on the, the secondary marketplace or whatever. So I've done that. And then, you know, Topshot also has a marketplace. I bought, you know, some really low-end cards on that too. So, um, you know, rather than OpenSea, which or others, you know, that are out there too. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I think what's interesting on the marketplace, you're right. I think that is another place for, you know, revenue generation. Um, you know, obviously, uh, in terms of percentages, uh, you know, right now we're testing against to find like that sweet medium uh, that will be fair and equitable to users as well as the business. Um, so we haven't landed on like a set percentage, but, you know, we're working through that. Um, but what I think is interesting, even with the marketplace is, again, it goes back to the product. And I'll, I'll highlight um, Sorare as a good example. Right. So if you guys don't know what that product is, it's a fantasy, you know, uh, football or soccer game, depending on what region of the world you're from. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about what they did in terms of revenue generation is they decided uh, probably, you know, as the game was being developed, that they were going to capture most of the revenue on the primary side, you know, versus the secondary market. So they elicited as much value extraction on selling the various player cards within their game versus the secondary marketplace, which is you know, somewhat contrary to a lot of other products in the marketplace, which is the other way around, right? Mm -hmm. They have fixed or very low prices on the primary side, and there is an expectation that they're going to go and, you know, speculate on the marketplace side, which drives that GMV. So again, depending on the kind of business model that you want, you might be able to elicit different responses, but the vehicles are the same. It's just the percentages are different. Yeah, and and uh, loot, which we were talking about earlier, has goes that way so we gave everything away for free but you know i don't know what the transactional volume is a billion dollars or something of, of money changing hand on loot project and he he will see million. how many sorry 240 million it, no i think that's a market cap though isn't it no no it was it was how much was being transacted to volume okay okay uh, my, my point is that he sees a cut of that and that's the no he doesn't he does right he no, does, no, not he on secondary sales no, no there's nothing nothing uh -huh, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. He could, I guess. Yeah, see, David, no, we, we could have made this better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you should have. But I think, I yeah. mean, that's for me one of the key reasons also why it got so popular. The fact that it, it's not, you know, the fact that it's just do whatever you want. This is just 8,000 lists. I mean, he could, have, he could have done that with a kickback to him. And yeah, he, he could have. Achieved, have. Right, okay. Yeah. I, I think, so I could be completely wrong about this, but from what I recall, there was like a little bit of fine print in the way that he did the loot. Um, There's 8,000 bags, right? Uh, 7,777 of them were given out. The rest he held mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah. whatever that 200, you know, that's remaining, mm -hmm. he, he may be able to get a cut off of those because if he kept those minted and sold, there might be some revenue transaction that might occur. I don't know exactly what it did with the ones that he held back. Uh, I don't know if that information is publicly available, but mm -hmm. yeah, to David's point, you know, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that your entry point and where you exit could be very different depending on how you structure that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you could be sure that everyone's looking at his wallet and like the moment he sells one of his 
uh, loot, then uh, you'll probably see the market absolutely collapse. Yeah, you better believe it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. All right. Ne next to monetization, what are some other best practices um, you see in the space, Chong? Um, one thing that I uh, so I'm I'm really kind of like really keen and interested in studying uh, community formation and how that leads to revenue generation. And so what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the products, you know, that are coming out in market, uh, they have a really interesting, I guess, the, the, the umbrella term that people are using is like pre-sale, right? And so, you know, if you take a look at, um, let's say, there was like a really interesting NFT, I think it's more like an art project that's going to become something else, but it's, it was called like the seven. Uh, it was like an anime inspired like art collection similar to like the board ape yacht club but there's a whole sale behind that and you know they're building up a community kind of like validating and testing the market to see you know what their level of discord membership looks like you know how much you know uh, social activity is there in terms of retweets this that and the other and then see if there's a sellout and but that's just the start of their journey, right? Because, uh, you, know, you know, whether it's the Seven or, you know, Board 8 Yacht Club or whoever else, they usually have a roadmap saying, we're going to start with this thing. And then there's all these other things that are going to be coming downstream. But every single step along the way, there's revenue that's being generated there. And so what does that lead to? What's that revenue being used for? A lot of the times, if you look at the roadmap, they're saying, now that we've generated all these things and there's like a community and there's a certain you know membership that's been created, we're now going to go and do, I don't know, we're going to build a film, we're going to build a comic book, we're going to build you know a game. And it's basically helping to fund whatever the next step in their roadmap is. Mm. So whether, and I don't want to paint that with like, that's a revenue play. It's almost like a, again, community you know, budget formation, revenue formation, so that they can extend the lifeline of whatever project that the community is super involved in. I think that's super fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, the pre-sale seems to be a valid way to. I don't know whether people are doing it to get funding or just to get revenue. I'm not sure, but uh, it seems to be best practice to announce what you're doing, do a pre-sale on NFTs that. Often people don't know how it's going to be uh, used in the game. But, I mean, that's exactly the same as Star System for the last 10 years, whatever <laughs> that been. It's the same kind of thing where you're sort of buying into what this game might be in the future and I'm happy to buy something that, that I'll get to use in that game, whatever that game might be. Mm -hmm. So it's not a completely new idea. It's just a better way of handling it, I think. And that, another thing that I'm seeing in um, is the governance token and... You know, there's lots of complexities. I won't pretend I fully understand all of it, but but I like the idea that you're allowing the your players to invest in in the game, and you, the the idea is that the the players, potential players, own uh, part of the revenue stream that's coming in, and I think that's rather than the company that made the game taking all the money for themselves. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because it gives those people that have bought those treasury tokens a vested interest in getting behind the game. And I think that ends up being a form of marketing. So if it was in mobile, we'd spend a lot of money on UA. Maybe this is something similar where, fine, there's, there's a community that is going to see a lot of the revenue from this game, but they're the mm -hmm. ones that are making it, uh, getting people to know about it. They have a vested interest. They've got money. They've got skin in the game. And I wonder if that's the treasury token is a form of marketing and promotion. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, from a growth or UA perspective, pre-sales, by far, 
has been the most active I've been in terms of acquisition um, around that time. And then after a presale, it's pretty dark um, because there's a lot of hype. There's also timing a presale around uh, the ability to even look at the function of a game, not even being able to play it, but maybe just like being able to see some mocks or specs of things like it, it adds to, to that kind of activity. Um, and then driving to the discord, I mean, the, the, maybe to what David, David and Sean were saying too, is like the discord community, the community in general are your best salespeople. So when you drive to a discord community, they're the ones that are actually usually upselling on, Hey, you got to get, you know, the, uh, the treasury token or like a, you know, uh, one of the founders, you know, items or whatever it is, like they're the ones upselling it because they're, they've been in the project for since the beginning. So uh, I, I also noticed that, uh, uh, projects that do a really good job of managing the community and discord and, and using it as a channel um, and a primary channel too for uh, acquiring users and getting those VIP or getting those high value users is like a, a, a key strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think, you know, good points from Janie and David. I, I think if you take a look at it holistically, it just really comes down to you know, the, the value chain, you know, across that product's life cycle, which, you know, in free-to-play games, we look at, I think, from a slightly different lens, but there are a lot of parallels that you can draw. But when you have things like governance tokens, treasuries, um, you know, you're, you're really talking to, like, golden cohorts, essentially, right? Yeah. These guys are super, super involved. You know, they have a vested stake in wanting to see the success of this product. They found like-minded individuals similar to them, and they're rallying around that. And so now it creates a really interesting value proposition for them to keep that ecosystem positive, going in the right direction, having some voice within the development of said thing. And now it's like beneficial for all parties involved. So that dynamic, I think, is really cool. Um, And I think it'll lead to some interesting behaviors that you might not necessarily see, you know, in traditional games. Right. And like the percentage of how much of that governance token is, you know, provided through that DAO. What's the level of. I guess, you know, control or influence that they're able to have, you know, within that game's ecosystem and so on and so forth. This is where I think, you know, the power of like blockchain, NFT, governance, like all that stuff comes into play. And as you kind of, you know, go along that journey, how you release more information, whether it's the release of new tokens or it's release of playable builds, new assets, what have you, I think that's really where it comes into play. Just like super fascinating. And the funny thing too about like, releasing more information or like the maturing crypto audience is that they are getting more mature in terms of wanting to understand, well, what's the utility of this NFT before I go buy this? Now, Loot maybe had just like, you know, contradicted everything that I that I thought about in terms of like the market maturing and they wanting more detailed information on everything that will be released and wanting to compare like, okay, if I have uh, money in this project and, you know, what I'm noticing is like, the wallet share issue is that crypto folks have investments in all these different projects and it's getting harder and harder to get wallet share of these really high value players or users into, you know, your new projects or even continuation of your project for, you know, continued purchases. Now, Loot maybe threw that all all away for me because I was like, okay, yeah, like, you know, we just need more detail and more of this and, you know, more mocks and then, you know, more gameplay and that kind of stuff. And then obviously then you have a text file that breaks the internet or whatever. So there you go. Paradigm shift. Told you. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like we loot referral code Nico. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, send me some uh, some adventure gold if you if you like uh, what I, what I just did. Um, anyway, let's. Uh, yeah, I feel like we can probably do like a whole episode on best practices, but we have uh, an episode to uh, like an end to to, to work towards. So uh, let's keep it at that. Um, if you have more questions for uh, the panelists, if you want to know more about loot or whatever, <laughs> feel free to, to join us in our Discord. Um, I've already said you can sign up on, on Navic.co. Um, so yeah, let's go to our bonus segment, guys. Now is your time to shine, to give us some crazy, crazy bold prediction. Um, David, I'll let you start. Oh, well, I'm going to keep it uh, blockchain themed since we come this far. I'm picturing that new zoo chart, you know, the one I'm talking about, the pie mm -hmm. chart that shows the pieces of the industry, which I... I always think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think uh, 25% to blockchain in three years. <coughs> All right. That's, uh, you know, I think it's just going to take a big old chunk. Oh, you know, maybe it's additive. I'd like to think that, you know, yeah. maybe just yeah, pushes yeah. everything else. But, uh, you know, it's not, this is not VRAR. This is, you know, I could see it easily exceeding uh, uh, PC even, you know. Yeah. But how do you measure this? Because do you measure it for all the revenue from games that have something to do with blockchain uh because like what do you compare it to do you compare it to pc mobile etc because mobile games can have blockchain pc games can have blockchain how, how would you look at that well i think um you know this isn't really my bold prediction anymore but uh i think that you could say well uh, a blockchain game is any game that has an nft in i think that over time it's going to be become clear that there's a certain type of game that are blockchain games i think it, i think uh people that are trying and just introduced blockchain elements into their existing game are going to struggle because I think you really have to burn everything to the ground and start on the way up, just as had to be done with free-to-play. You couldn't just take existing games, give it a twist, and now it's free-to-play. Mm. In the same way as I don't think you can just take a twist to existing games today. So I think that much in the same way it's pretty easy to define free-to-play, um, I think it's going to be easy to define a blockchain game. And, right. it, and my prediction is it will be 25%. Super. John, what about you? No, I love that bold prediction, David. Um, <laughs> Thank no, you. I really like that one. Um, mine, mine's a little bit out there, I think, but what I think is going to end up happening, I think in less, maybe about a year, max two years' time, uh, I think we're going to see one of the major market, uh, traditional marketplaces as we know it today for games. So who am I pointing at? I'm pointing at guys like Valve, you know, guys like Epic. Um, I think they're going to get into the space in a pretty big way. Um, I think the infrastructure is there. I think they have the technology. I think they've been looking at it for a while. Um, companies like Valve have suffered from, you know, uh, gray markets for some time. Mm. Um, you know, particularly games like Counter-Strike, right? Where, you know, one of the one of the bigger blockchain players in the space right now, Wax, was built off of that, right? They created something like OP Scans that eventually became Wax, uh, and they were able to generate significant amount of revenue and interest. And so, uh, you know, I think companies like Valve, companies like Epic, you know, they are understanding of the wave that's coming. And mm. my bold prediction is that they're going to get into the space in a very meaningful way. And I think when they do, it's going to create a whole rush of other things because a major player like them is going to, yeah, going to put their muscle behind it. One year. That's great. One to two years. One to two years. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Very good. Uh, awesome prediction. Janie. Um, well, David and Sean are very articulate and 
are a lot more futurist than I am. Um, I will not give you credentials on why I, I'm terrible at predicting these things, but um, some thoughts. Uh, I think that there is going to be a, a, a backlash on on marketplaces like OpenSea, like these third-party uh, marketplaces with the fraud issue, unless they clean that up. Um, I see a, a rise in game or, or entity own marketplaces as like the authenticator or the like, the, you know, basically the, the trust of buying something. So, so I, I'm concerned, I guess, with uh, the open seas of the world, um, if they don't kind of manage the fraud issue um, and lack of confidence that some people are starting to have and the authentication of it. And then my other prediction, um, I, I see one of the big players like Activision or EA uh, launching uh, NFTs in their games in the next, by the at least one of them by uh, the end of this year. The end of this year? Yeah. Wow. You know, I would say that as bold predictions go, all three of us came up with fairly modest ones. I mean, <laughs> you, could, you can easily imagine each one of them. Well, at least I can. I That's true. Yeah. Actually, I was expecting Janie to say, I expect Lou to go to zero. Um, <laughs> first of all, that's not true. And you know what? Maybe I will use your referral code and get myself a little oh, bag. We convinced her. Yeah. That's all I wanted so, to achieve with this podcast. Yeah. So, Very good. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> Amazing. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for joining me, David, Janie, and, and Chong. I really enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot. And um, I hope and I think our, our listeners will do too. Listener, thank you so much for listening. For more content about the business of games, visit navic.co. And uh, yeah, there you can also subscribe and join our Discord where we will uh, keep this conversation going. So if you have any more questions about all of this stuff, join us there. Um, yeah, this was the Metacost and we look very much forward to speaking to you next week. Cheers. Cheers.